0: Thank you, Jenny. Good morning, everyone, Good morning. or everyone who has stayed here rather than gone out. I often think of the words of the Lord Jesus when everybody leaves, will you also go away? But uh, It's really great they've managed to stay. You may remember that as we finished last week, we were reminded that the, the word that would come through Jeremiah would be a, a word which would emphasize the destruction and damage which living without the Lord was going to do to Israel. And uh, the Lord said to him, you are going to say whatever I say to you. We're going to look at Jeremiah chapter 2 this morning, just a section of it, um, from verses 4 through to verse 19. And looking at the, the first discourse which the Lord gave to Jeremiah to say, It's very direct. Um, It's got a phrase in it which many of you will remember, I'm sure, from your Sunday school days. So from verse 4 of Jeremiah chapter 2, the words will be on the screen. Hear the word of the Lord, O house of Jacob, all you clans of the house of Israel. This is what the Lord says. What fault did your fathers find in me that they strayed so far from me? They followed worthless idols and became worthless themselves. They did not ask, where is the Lord who brought us up out of Egypt and led us through the barren wilderness, through a land of deserts and rifts, a land of drought and darkness, a land where no one travels and no one lives. I brought you into a fertile land to eat its fruit and rich produce. But you came and defiled my land and made my inheritance detestable. The priest did not ask, where is the Lord? Those who deal with the law did not know me. The leaders rebelled against me. The prophets prophesied by Baal, following worthless idols. Therefore I bring charges against you again, declares the Lord, and I will bring charges against your children's children. Cross over to the coast of Kittim and look, send to Kedar and observe closely. See if there er- has ever been anything like this. Has a nation ever changed its gods? Yet they are not gods at all. But my people have exchanged their glory For worthless idols. Be appalled at this, O heavens, and shudder with great horror, declares the Lord. My people have committed two sins. They have forsaken me the spring of living water, and have dug their own cisterns, broken cisterns that cannot hold water. Is Israel a servant, a slave by birth? Why then has he become plunder? Lions have roared, they have growled at him. They have laid waste his land, his towns are burned and deserted. Also, the men of Memphis and Taphanes have shaved the crown of your head. Have you not brought this on yourselves by forsaking the Lord your God when he led you in the way? Now, why go to Egypt to drink water from the Shihor? And why go to Assyria to drink water from the river? As the Euphrates. Your wickedness will punish you. Your backsliding will rebuke you. Consider then and realize how evil and bitter it is for you when you forsake the Lord your God and have no awe of me, declares the Lord. The Lord Almighty. Very powerful words, aren't they? And words which I think have got huge significance for us today. As we live in a country which seems as finding it increasingly difficult to find its way forward in various aspects of its political life. Because whenever a, a nation or a people or an individual forsakes God, then the way becomes rough and tough. And it seems that there's no way out. And yet this is a tendency which we all have within ourselves, within our sinfulness. There is always the tendency to forsake God, regardless of how well we, we know him. And you'll notice that in verse 5 and also in verse 11, that you have an emphasis upon that. In verse 5, this is what the Lord says What fault did your fathers find in me that they strayed so far from me? They followed worthless idols and became worthless themselves. And then in verse 11, Has a nation ever changed its gods? Yet they're not gods at all. But my people have exchanged their glory for worthless idols. And then the phrase, Be appalled at this. And you'll have noticed our reading includes all the people, the priests and the leaders of the people and the rank and file of the congregation, if I can use that term, had all forsaken the God of glory and exchanged he who was so significant to them and had been so precious to them for two generations in the wilderness. Then when they got into the land of promise, they quickly forgot the greatness and majesty of God. Where is the one who redeemed us in our living? Where is the Lord? And, you know, to have that awareness that when we stray from him, we need to work out that we have moved away from him rather than him moving away from us. That is really the, the crux of this whole di- uh, statement, which I, Jeremiah brings as the, as the first statement of a whole series of discourses which are all down the same line. you know, Why have you done this? Why has it become so much part of your experience that you just forsake the Lord and put something else in his place? This contrast between the worthless idols that Israel had turned to and the one who was their glory, the one who was their basis for being, the one before whom they cried out on the mountain, Lord, preserve us, keep us. The one who provided water for them and daily bread, the manna every morning, freshly gathered, fresh from God's kitchen, and supplied their needs for more than 40 years. When they got into a land of plenty, they began to forget him. I can remember the first time I went to Romania in 1989, just after Ceaușescu was shot uh, I was there at the end of February and there for the month of March and the country was destitute. They, they really had absolutely nothing. and there, as, there were, as you know, a number of um, charities put in place shortly after that which supplied the need of the Romanian people as far as we were able to for a number of years. Christchurch Aid for Romania uh, was probably the most prominent one on the South West. But during that first missionary journey that I had there, it was just incredible. Every church that I visited, and I was in five different churches during three and a half weeks, they were full because the people had a a sense of need, a sense of spiritual need. And they had survived all the trauma of Ceausescu and his minions for many years. And yet still had this sense that they needed the Lord. I went back again about two years later, and there was a subtle change. There were some goods in the shops, it was possible to begin to have some form of transport. The oil wells had been reopened and so forth and so on. There were no longer mounds of potatoes in the fields going to waste. The the land had become somewhat fruitful. And there weren't so many folk about in the churches. One church which had been filled previously, was, which had about 250 in the congregation, there were less than 100 there. It may have been because I was back, but I suspect there were other reasons. Once people begin to have enough or more than enough, we begin to lose sight of the one who has been our supplier of all of our needs throughout our living. You know, we say in what's commonly called the Lord's Prayer, give us this day our daily bread. In other words, there's a daily recognition of the Lord's supply of our need. If our freezers are full, sometimes it's easy to forget where the food originally comes from. And there there is this tendency to begin to move away from God and to, to look for something which has got apparently more substance. It's interesting the references that are made to idols in this particular passage. But you'll recognize that an idol is the making of man's own heart. It's forming something which he can then set up and adore and worship. And it's common in heathen, what we commonly call heathen countries, but I suspect is becoming common in uh, countries like our own, where we, we form gods in our own image. We, we either make the God who is God in the image that we would like him to have, rather than just recognizing that he is who he is. And he can realistically do without us, but he chooses not to because he loves us. And he, he is the essence and the glory that Jeremiah is talking about here. He is the one who has been permanent in the nation of Israel and has made a difference to the way they are and the way they are as a people. He is the one who has supplied all their needs through the wilderness, supplied the land itself, taken them and guided them on a journey which led eventually to Jericho and then to the conquest of the nation that was in in charge of Canaan at that particular time. And yet the people forgot. They began to think, well, we did it. They began to think they did it our way. They began to feel that somehow or other they had come, uh, made the accomplishment. And so they began to worship the idols of the surrounding nations that the glory of God had destroyed. And can you see how peculiar and paltry that is? to actually get to the stage of worshipping the idols of those nations which were no longer nations because they had been destroyed by Israel. But the idols were still present. And when you trace Israel's history uh, prior to the prophecy of Jeremiah, which is going to finish with the destruction of Jerusalem, when you trace Israel's history in the previous 1,500 years, this had always been their tendency. Throughout the Book of Judges, they worshipped idols. They lost touch with God. God raised up a judge to bring him to bring them back to Himself through the ministry of the judge. And judge after judge after judge after judge brought them back to God, and then they immediately began to wander away. Within a generation, why why do we have this tendency within our hearts to to worship the makings of our own hands? To think of the things that we have achieved and the things that we have managed to to get to grips with in our lives and maybe we have got enough pension to survive on and so forth and so on and yet somehow or other the the tendency to make an idol of anything arises. I occasionally watch Bargain Hunt because it comes just before I have lunch and every now and again somebody finds something which is actually worth something well, they're worth less than what they paid for it. And the joy which comes to them for somehow or other having achieved this is quite remarkable, even though it's only a few pounds. But, you know, there is this tendency to somehow assume, well, well we managed it. You know, we picked the right particular item for sale and we made a bit of money and so forth and so on. And uh, it's hilarious in some ways. But you recognize the, the impetus within us as, as humans to make achievements which we can apply to ourselves, to make an an idol of our education, to make an idol of our abilities, whatever they happen to be. And yet it's all down to him. It is he who has made us what we are. And any gifts that we do have are all his gifts. And any abilities that we have all come from him. So who are we to become self-congratulatory and, and, you know, make an idol of our grandchildren or whatever? We need to restore the glory to God. We need to recognize that we are who we are because of who God is. And I fear that in my own lifetime I might become blasé about this and not recognize how much I owe him. You know... Everything that I am and have, thy gift so free, as the old hymn says. All that I am and have, thy gift so free. And that's which, it is that which brings me to worship. It is that which brings me to recognize the majesty and glory of the one who is my Saviour. So, what do we do then when we have. Come into this situation, and as the scripture says, the, the leaders have rebelled against me, and the prophets prophesied by Baal, the false god of thunder, and uh, they have ignored me, following worthless idols. What's the next step? Well, this famous verse, this one which I suppose many of us have heard and thought about, verse 13. Which is an interesting number for the first verse in our translation. But verse 13, God says, My people have committed two sins. They have forsaken me, the spring of living water. And the second sin, they have dug their own cisterns, broken cisterns that cannot hold water. We construct a substitute. We find something else to fill up our lives. We get busy with our own schemes. We dig our own cisterns. And they are passively filled by that which falls from the heavens. But they can't hold anything because they're, they're the construct of our own hands. There can't remain anything fresh within them. So there's a stillness begins to come into our Christian living. Because we have forsaken the fountain or the spring of living water. you remember the Lord Jesus' words in John 8 when he said, If any man is thirsty, let him come unto me and drink. I'll give him living water, which will be in him a spring of water, welling up into everlasting life. The the contrast is, is remarkable the broken cisterns that we construct with our own hands, even though they're formed in rock, with great labor and with great emphasis on our own strength, and the one who is the spring of living water. Infinite. You know, we we can know this freshness in our lives every day. As long as we are in touch with the source If we're in touch with the Lord Jesus, then he he supplies to us that which is fresh from the throne of God. But if we try to live on past experiences of Christ and we think back to what used to be, then you can recognize immediately there's a sense of stillness in that. If we make a construct of our past Christian life, and say, well, I'm a Christian, so I'm going to be all right. And whenever the Lord comes or when I die, I'm going to be in glory. So I'll just struggle on as things are. But to get back in touch with the source to to recognize that I may have forsaken this one who is the Fountain of living waters. This all-sufficient eternal. This one who gives the, the precious gift. This one who is divine. This one who fills all in all. This one who, who fills my heart and my mind. And my love and my hope and my life. This God who has always been good to me. This God who gave me this morning and brought me safely here. This God who has been my everything. I need to rediscover that every day. Jill and I usually have about 20 minutes together in the morning just praying and thinking about various things. And we've been looking recently at some material that we've had from the Barnabas Trust. And the number of our fellow Christians in the world who are suffering desperately for their faith, even to the loss of life, as well as loss of jobs and livelihood, uh, having their churches burnt down, having their pastors imprisoned, and so forth and so on. And yet there's a vibrancy about those folk. And I'm back to where I started with that illustration from Romania. They had nothing, but they had everything. They had this awareness of the, of the completeness of God for their life, of, of this one who can supply their every need, as he promises to do. Not their every want, but their every need. And this contrast with these hewing out cisterns, this other sin, having forsaken the one who is living, this other sin of hewing out for themselves, it's a strange statement isn't it? They have dug their own cisterns. Laborious toil and rock which must always be filled from an outside agency anyway. They're, you know they're only capable of containment. They're not capable of bringing something to bear or something functional to happen within the actual life of the individual. They're self-designed. Well I'm going to set up a wee store here and it's going to be sufficient for my life and I'm going to have money and so forth and so on. But it ain't, you know, because it never brings any sort of satisfaction. And so the scripture says that they are broken, broken cisterns that cannot hold water. They're flawed in the design because we have designed them ourselves. And not only is there no supply, but there's no security in what does come and what happens to be there we drink of this water, we thirst again because we have designed it and we have put this in as a substitute for somehow or other getting past the need for a living relationship with the Lord Jesus through the work of the Holy Spirit. And every day, I suggest to you, we face this same issue. We're either going to live within the the glory of having this person who supplies our every need in a fresh and real way in our lives, morning by morning, or we're going to dig some sort of cistern or say, well, I've got a supply last Sunday and it'll last me to next Sunday. It has to be fresh. It has to be living. And I need to be in such a relationship with the Lord that it is his supply. The water that I shall give him shall be in him a well of water, springing up into everlasting life. In our church life, we can construct artificial forms of worship or of service. We can copy a church down the road and say, well, they have tried that, maybe we should try that. Each church needs to be in touch with the Lord to be guided by the Lord. And the church is comprised of the individuals who are in the church. So if the individuals who are within the church are not being guided by the Lord, how can the church be guided by the Lord? And to say, well, it's the leader's responsibility, it is to some degree, but it's the the member's responsibility. Each of us has a responsibility to be, to be in touch with the Lord in a living and, and fresh and continual way. Because the people of Israel at this time thought they were worshipping the Lord. They were still offering the sacrifices every day. That becomes clear in the latter chapters of Jeremiah. They were still offering sacrifices every day. They were, they were doing what God had asked them to do, but their heart wasn't in it. It was just a form and it had lost its substance. What a challenge to my heart. Do I preach what people want to hear? I didn't find the preparation for this morning easy. Because this is a difficult passage to preach. But the reality of it is we need to take stock of our lives day by day and say, Lord, am I doing what you want me to do? Or am I doing what I want to do? One final thing. You'll notice the bitterness of such a path, having chosen to go this direction. And I'll just read this to you again. From verse 14. Is Israel a servant a slave by birth? Why then has he become plunder? In other words, why is he in slavery to the surrounding nations? Lions have roared, they've growled at him. They've laid waste his land. His towns are burned and deserted. The men of Memphis and Tafani, that is the Egyptians, have shaved the crown of their head. They have taken slaves from amongst the Israelites. And then he says, verse 17, Have you not brought this on yourselves by forsaking the Lord your God when he led you in the way? Would you rather be a slave having forsaken God and not following him as he directs you. Why go to Egypt to drink water from the Shihor? Why go to Assyria to drink water from the Euphrates? Why do it? You would you not rather live in your own country? Would you not rather have the blessings that I have poured upon you within the bounds of Israel and enjoy it and live by it? Your wickedness will punish you. Your backsliding will rebuke you. In other words you reap what you sow. This great everlasting principle which is stated so, so often throughout Scripture. Whatever you sow, you reap. And if you're going to live this way and if you're going to live out of touch with me, then you'll recognize that you will be in a far country. Consider then or realize how evil and bitter it is for you when you forsake the Lord your God and have no awe of me, says the Lord the Lord Almighty. Plunder and rebuke, evil and bitterness. And you know, sometimes the way that we embark upon is is difficult. The the words here which are used in this pathway of despair that we have in these few verses uh, have got the implication of running to a far country of being enslaved by others and I was reminded very strongly of the great story of the two sons that the Lord Jesus tells in Luke 15 they were sons please don't talk about the guy we normally call as a prodigal as though he wasn't a son he was a son of the father and the other son The elder son was a son of the father. And the prodigal goes, as you know, into a far country. He's part of the family, but he's lost away. He's forsaken. And eventually, after he had spent everything, you'll notice he hired himself to a citizen of that country. In other words, he became a slave. He hired himself to a citizen of that country, he sent them into a field to feed swine. Good job for a Jew, isn't it? And he fain would have filled his belly with the husks that the swine did eat. He was starving. And when he came to himself, he said, how many hired servants of my father have bread enough and to spare and I perish with hunger I will arise and go to my father and say to my father I have sinned because he had forsaken that which was the place of blessing I've sinned against heaven and before you I'm no longer worthy to be called your son make me as one of your hired servants then at least I'll have enough to eat When he returns to the father, the father meets him more than halfway. You ever seen an old man run? Must be something important. He ran, the father ran, and threw his arms around this smelly son and kissed him. The son said to his father, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you, and I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. But he doesn't say the next bit. Make me like a hired servant because he recognized he was being received back as a son. That's why the father threw his arms around him and kissed him. That's what I do to my kids even though they're almost all over 40 now because it's great to see them and I'm still their father. The elder son was in the field He heard music and dancing Your brother has come back. He ain't no brother of mine. He's a son of my father, but he ain't a brother. Very telling. And the story about the two sons is that the one who forsook his father and went away found out what the father was really like. And the one who stayed close to the father's house never even calls his father, father, in the whole of the story. Because somehow or other he had forgotten the relationship. Even though he lived within the father's house. What's the illustration? So obviously, isn't it? One had gone away and found the father when he returned. One had stayed close and never knew the father. (coughs) Thought he did. Lived in the same house and some sort of second-hand experience of the fatherhood. Incidentally, when the story begins, the Lord says that the father divided unto them his living. So he gave both sons that which was coming to them. And that would have meant the elder son would have had two-thirds, and the younger son would have had one-third. And yet the elder son says to the father later, you never even give me a kid that I could celebrate with my friends. And this distortion arises when we mistake the one who has blessed us greatly and live in a sort of second-hand experience at arm's length from the glory and greatness of the Father. And it's so easy to do. If I spend a day without communicating with the Lord I know about it the next day I'm sure you do too you don't talk to the Lord you don't listen to the Lord you don't read his word how how can you know him and yet if you do somehow there are these little gems as Jenny was sharing with us from Psalm 23 these little gems when you suddenly realise you've been chosen by him as one of his sheep you're called by him as one of his sheep. And you're blessed by him as one of his sheep. And when you spend your life in the joy of that, it's a great way to live. But to lose the immediacy of it, to hew out cisterns, to have a secondhand experience of life, it's like a living death, isn't it? So as I close this morning, let's just remember the requirement that we have as fellow brothers and sisters to care for one another, yes, but to have an immediacy of relationship with the Father and to live in the joy of his love, to live the awareness of his love and not to make things with our own hands which we use as a substitute for a relationship with the Almighty. We're going to sing a song.